Well, welcome back to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, We started last week. We're going to finish off the chapter tonight. So you could reach for a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 14, the church Bibles. That's page 1155, 1155. We're very much building on what we saw last week. Um, We'll recap it briefly, but if you weren't here and some of tonight doesn't make sense, then maybe go back on the website and have a listen to what we saw. The first verse of chapter 14 helps us remember the context. Paul writes, follow the way of love. That was chapter 13. He says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. That was chapter 12. And then he says, especially the gift of prophecy. That has been his argument in 1 Corinthians 14 so far. Uh, Last week we saw that the apostle Paul had this burning desire within him that we would be eager to edify one another. That we would have this burning desire to build one another up in the faith. And his foundation principle for that was edification will come through intelligibility. That will strengthen one another as long as we are being understandable. Edification through intelligibility. The pillar that he builds upon today is that edification comes through order. Intelligibility and order. So let's read 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. What then shall we say, brothers, brothers and sisters? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter... The speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church now. Uh, Can I encourage you uh, to wait and see how that comes in the flow of the chapter. That we, before we make a decision to be offended by those words, that we make a decision to understand them. Okay? We're going to get to this. Uh, Let's keep reading. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Uh, This chapter is all about order, so uh, we're going to be ordered in the way we approach it in the same way that we were ordered last week. Last week we looked at the principle, 
that Paul lays out, he then applies that principle to Corinth, and then we're going to look at how it looks, how it applies in Charlotte Chapel. So we're going to follow that same order, just for the sake of order. So what is the principle that Paul is teaching? How does he apply that principle in Corinth to this first century local church? And then how do we apply that principle in Charlotte Chapel? You tracking? Good. Here's the principle. Have a look at verse 26 and verse 40. These are the bookends of the section that will come up on the screen. The end of verse 26, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Then verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Here's Paul's principle. When you guys come together, there should be order for the sake of strength. There must be order in the church gathering for the sake of the strength of the church gathered. It is strength through order. That is Paul's principle in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, how does this apply in Corinth, the principle applied in Corinth? Look at the start of verse 26. What should we then say? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Speaking in Corinth had become a competitive sport. Everyone wanted to have their say. There's that word, everyone comes with something or something or something or something. Everyone wants the stage. And as you read on the chapter, it seems that they weren't even waiting for one or another to stop before they started. I have some picture in my mind of a stock exchange. Pray for movies, and it's maybe not based on real life. But everyone is shouting and speaking and waving things, and it is chaos. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. Everyone has something to say. Their arrogance, which Paul has already highlighted in the letter, had led to anarchy. Church services were more raucous than reverential. There was more pandemonium than peace, and there was more chaos than composure. The Apostle Paul will make the summary. They are more secular than they are spiritual. They loved the sound of their own voice. You've heard the phrase, that person could talk the rear end off a donkey. I don't know what that means. But if it's true, in Corinth, there was a lot of two-legged donkeys because they loved talking. Everyone has a something to share when you come together. And so the Apostle Paul, eager to build this church up, descends himself to the immensely practical. Order for the sake of strength. And he speaks to three groups of people. He addresses three groups, asking them, maybe commanding them, to help facilitate order by keeping quiet. He speaks to tongue speakers to those who prophesy, and then to women in the congregation, and says, for the sake of strengthening this church, let's have some order through your silence. Uh, there's a great proverb, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. I could go into a metaphysics or some fancy philosophy lecture in a university and I could sit quiet and mm, 
I could appear wonderfully wise. The moment I open my gob, everyone knows that I am a fool. Even a fool can be seen as wise if he keeps silent. Sometimes wisdom is seen in being wished. Sometimes the most spiritual thing can be to keep silent. And the Apostle Paul says, we need order for the sake of the strength of this church. And actually, it's going to come through some people choosing to remain quiet rather than everyone speaking. So let's look at how this principle applies to Corinth. Three groups that he addresses. First in verses 27 to 28, when tongue speakers should keep quiet. 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself. And God, what's the situation? Well, it seems from what Paul says, they are given too much prominence to this gift of tongues. It is dominating this one gift rather than there being the diversity of many gifts. It seems too that uh, they are all speaking at the same time. Uh, There's chaos rather than order. And finally, it seems that there is no interpretation given. It is unintelligible rather than edifying. And so Paul applies his principle. Order for the sake of strength. It's almost parental advice, isn't it? He says things like, okay, a maximum of three people are going to speak, one at a time. Then his final statement, if there is no interpreter, they should keep quiet. Display your spirituality through silence. Now, I can imagine for a church where tongues was the be-all and end-all, they loved it. It was the gift they were all pursuing. That felt like a heavy hand in Corinth. But Paul says, for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ, order for the sake of strength. Now, let me ask you three questions. And this is meant to be, this is not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for answers. Let me ask you three questions which will help us as we track through these three groups. First question does Paul seem to be addressing a particular issue in Corinth? Okay, looking for more. Uh, the answer is yes. Is Paul addressing a particular issue in Corinth? Yes, he seems to be. He seems to know what is going on. Uh, you can be more confident than that. Okay? Second question. This is easier. Does he silence all tongues speakers? No, good. You're getting better. Third question, is he commanding a permanent silence on tongue speakers? No. He does seem to be addressing this particular issue. He doesn't silence them all. He says three at most. But even then, it is not a permanent once-for-all silence. Maybe next week they could have their turn. Now, that's going to be important as we work our way through the next two examples. Second then. Verses 29 to 33a, when a prophesier should stop. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what's said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you cannot prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. What's the situation? 
the specific situation in Corinth. It seems that they were undervaluing the gift of prophecy. Why do I say that? Well, when it came to tongues, he said, if anyone speaks in a tongue, whereas in this verse he says, two or three prophets should speak. This is for the good of the church. So they seem to be undervaluing the speaking of God's word. They're undervaluing it, but they're leaving it unevaluated. He tells them, you must weigh carefully what is said. It appears that they're being maybe naive. They're accepting everything. And Paul says, you need to weigh carefully what you hear. Order for the sake of strength. He's given them the criteria already in these chapters. Chapter 12, verse 3. Jesus is Lord. That is what we test everything by. Does it submit to the lordship of Jesus? His authority, his rule, his kingship. Is it done out of love? Chapter 13. Does it build up and encourage and strengthen and support this church? They're the criteria. He says, weigh these things. Don't be naive. They were undervalued. They were unevaluated. And it seems too that it was a gift in some ways was being exploited. Here's the guy who won't shut up. He keeps going and going and going, even though someone else has something to say. An individual bloke is monopolizing the entirety of their meeting. And so Paul says, he should stop. Your spirituality should be displayed in a silence. Order for the sake of strength. Now, let me ask you those three questions again. Can you remember the answers? First question. Is, does Paul seem to be addressing a particular issue in the Corinthian church? Yes. Does he silence all prophecy? No. And is that command a permanent silence? No. Again, it could be that next week they could have their say. Now, he then gives the reason in verse 33 behind probably both these imposed order on tongues and prophecy. Why? For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. The source of his command, the reason for his command, is not the OCD of the Apostle Paul, but it is the character of God. The character of God does not just fill the content of our worship, but also determines the context of our worship. The God of peace is not displayed or glorified in a church that is chaotic. The God of peace is not displayed or glorified in the world by a church that is divided. No, the God of peace will be displayed in a church of peace. Here's the Corinthian church who are supposedly having gifts from God's spirit, but are using them for chaos. Paul says, who God is determines how we should worship. Order for the sake of strength. Now a third group, verses 33b to 35, when a woman should remain silent. Let's reread these verses. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, what is the situation that we glean from the words in these verses? In verse 34, 
the type of speech that is being talked about is a speech that throws off submission. In verse 35, it is a speech that brings disgrace. Let me say two very quick things. Um, this can be true of a man. A man can, be, can speak in a way that casts off submission to authority and brings disgrace. How do I know that? The following two verses. Verse 36, did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. You see, here is a man who with the gift of prophecy is casting off the authority of the Apostle Paul and therefore the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result, he himself is ignored. A man can speak in a way that casts off the right submissiveness to the Apostle Paul and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings disgrace. Now, this is not just targeting in on women. This is an act that both sexes fall in. A second thing. Not only is this something that is true of men. But a woman can speak in a way, as can a man that shows and reveals a submission and also can bring glory rather than disgrace. How do I know that? Chapter 11, Paul has already said, when a woman prays or prophesies. So clearly here, Paul is not ruling out all speech of a woman, but that speech that is throwing off this authority and that is bringing disgrace. See, I think if we ask those three questions again, is this a particular issue that Paul is addressing? I think the answer is yes. It was an issue across the entire, uh, as he says, as in all the congregations of the saints, it seems to be a prevailing issue in churches. Um, does he silence all women? Clearly not from chapter 11. If a woman prays or prophesies. And then again, is he silencing women completely well from chapter 11 I don't think so so what is going on here I think in part it is cultural in part it is theological uh, this disgrace is in part to do with the cultural context of Corinth in those days it was shameful for a woman to speak in public there's a guy called Plutarch who was writing, lived writing at the same time as the Apostle Paul in a neighboring province. And Plutarch said that for a woman to speak in public, it was as if she was exposing herself like she was naked. Now that is not our culture, but that is the culture into which Paul was writing. That it was a disgraceful thing. It is in part cultural. This disgrace. Maybe it was that the Corinthian women had found a freedom in the gospel. They had found freedom from the enslavement of the shame culture in Corinth. And that freedom had gone to their heads, maybe to their tongues. But it is also, as well as being cultural, it is probably in larger part 
theological. Paul has said that God is not a God of disorder. As the creator, he has put order into the intricacies of his creation. An order that includes the male-female relationship and the relationships and the practices of a local church. The Bible is clear that he created male and female equal. Equal dignity, equal worth, both made in the image of God. But they are different. They have different roles, different functions to play. The man is created to sacrificially, lovingly lead. The woman to willingly, joyfully be his help and his aid. The Bible says this is a God-given order that is for our good. It is for our flourishing, for the good of his creation. It is when we throw off that authority that sin comes in and distorts and disrupts and enslaves. God's order is a good order that brings true freedom. Why do we know that submission is not some horrible authoritarian thing? Well, in the next chapter, chapter 15, you can flick over chapter 15, verse 27. Here we read of Jesus, co-equal with the Father, fully divine. For he, Jesus, has... Uh, The Father has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under Jesus, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, willingly, gloriously submissive to God the Father. Uh, This is not... Weakness. This is not an imposed authoritarian rule. This is a loving response. Now, it seems that in the Corinthian church, the Corinthian women were casting off that authority. Uh, maybe speaking publicly in a way that would challenge their husband. Maybe assuming an authority that was not theirs. But here he says it is they are speaking in a way that is casting off that authority and is bringing disgrace in the church. And so Paul speaks to these women and says, display your spirituality by remaining silent in the church. He's not silencing all women. He's not silencing every type of speech. But this disgrace bringing submission Casting off, he says, remain silent. If it will bring disgrace, choose silence. Order for the sake of strength. Now, how do we apply this principle in Charlotte Chapel? Uh, We're not overrun by tongue speakers all speaking at the same time. You may argue that we have people who stand up and speak for too long. But also we live in a very different culture where it is not a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in public. How do we apply these things? Well, let me try and give four quick things, and we will be quick, that help us start to apply uh, this principle of order for the sake of strength. First then, 
a spirituality that is self-controlled. Spiritual gifts flourish best amid the spiritual fruits of self-control. Self-control will be the backbone to any strength in an individual or a congregation. There is this view, both, I think, in Corinth and also today, that the gifts of prophecy and tongues are some uncontrollable urge that puts people into a trance that they cannot control. I remember going to a church where the pastor was describing the experience of what he called the Holy Spirit coming upon him and a group of his members, and they fell on the floor giggling and wriggling and fitting. There is nothing spiritual about being out of control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Paul is, assumes in these verses that the tongue speaker, the prophesier, can stop, can contain, can remain in control. Self-control will be the backbone to any strength of a local congregation of God's people. Now that is probably a lesson we need to hear. Uh, the self-control of our tongue. Uh, we know from James, the tongue is a vicious weapon. It can divide, it can hurt, it can kill. If God is a God of peace, how are we using our tongues? Uh, in our conversation, after church, in our business meetings, in our fellowship groups. Is your tongue bringing this restoring peace or actually is it fracturing, dividing? Uh, We need this spirituality that shows a deep self-control in the power of God's Spirit. I I think we've got time. Young men, can I speak to you? Because whenever the Bible speaks of self-control, often it is addressed to young men. Young men, be self-controlled. Do not be controlled by uh, a love for this world. Do not be controlled by the peer pressure or the materialism. Do not be controlled by the lusts of the flesh. But young men, be self-controlled in the power of God's Spirit. Do not allow any loss of control now to disqualify the use of the gifts that he has given you of any ministry in the future. Young men, display that spirituality that is self-controlled. It is the backbone of any spiritual strength. Be self-controlled. Second thing we need to write through these, a worship that reflects the character of God. Who is God? He is the God of peace. He acts coherently, he acts faithfully, he is never self-contradictory. Ever since creation, he has been bringing order from chaos. Since the fall, he has been restoring peace where there was enmity between him and his creation. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the means of peace. That through his cross, where he would die for his enemies, that a rebel enemy like me can be reconciled with God's the Father. In the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get to in the next chapter, he is bringing order from the chaos of death. He is a God of peace. And therefore, our worship should reflect that. Our corporate gatherings must reflect that. 
The church that is divided, the church that is fractured is not the church that displays the glory of God. Uh, We must seek peace, pursue peace. I guess for some, actually coming to church is not a peaceful experience. Uh, We come burdened by the expectation of others. We come nervous. We want to maintain a front that everything is okay because everyone else seems to be okay. We're nervous about the relationship with that other person that's not in a good place. And actually, church is a place not of peace. It ought to be. Pursue peace, brothers and sisters. In the context of chapter 14, what does that mean? I think it means pursuing our spiritual gifts. If the God of peace is the God who gives us spiritual gifts, then as we discover what our spiritual gifts are and use them, it will move us towards peace. If you struggle to come to church, I guess the, the temptation is to withdraw, not to come. But actually, that will never bring peace. The way of peace will be to engage, to join the body, to serve the body with the gifts that he has given us. Uh, The God of peace gives us the spiritual gifts so that we can move towards the peace in our local congregations. Let me urge you, for the sake of peace, find out your spiritual gifts and use them for the good of the strengthening of each other. I need to keep moving. Next one. An avoidance of what will bring disgrace. Let me just mention a principle more than anything else. How do we define what is disgraceful? The Apostle Paul walks a fine line that seems to be, on the one hand, what is disgraceful in the eyes of culture, but on the other hand, what is disgraceful in terms of God's order in creation and his church. And he walks that fine line wonderfully. I think what has happened in our day is that we have completely fallen onto the side that says how we define disgrace is determined by the culture rather than by God's order. An example, heard a guy speaking a couple of months ago on the Christian view of homosexuality. He said if there are millions and millions of people in our world who will never listen to the gospel because of the biblical view of homosexuality, it would be wrong not to get rid of that view of homosexuality. Let's change it. The culture sees it as disgraceful. They'll never listen to us. Let's put that at a back seat for the sake of more people coming under the sound of the gospel. So our understanding of disgrace is now shaped by the culture rather than by God's authoritative word. Uh, We need to avoid anything that will bring disgrace on the gospel, on Christ's body, the church. But we can't let that be solely defined by what the culture considers disgraceful. One final thing an acknowledging of what is apostolic. In those final verses, in verses 36 to 38, the Apostle Paul presents himself as a quantum leap above the prophets of Corinth. He is the Lord's apostle. He speaks the Lord's commands. Chapter 15, he'll tell us, I met the risen Jesus. That's what an apostle is. They met Jesus. They were entrusted with Jesus' commands and teaching. And they are the foundation upon which the church is built with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. 
We can be defined by lots of things as a church. Baptist, independent, evangelical. But we need to preserve this identity as being apostolic. Not in terms of we think that gift is available today, but in terms of we are founded upon the teaching of the apostles given by the Lord Jesus Christ. We must cling to, love, pass on this apostolic gospel. What is it? He'll say in the next chapter, Christ Jesus died for us, for our sins, according to the scriptures. If you're not a Christian, uh, that is what we stand for. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He is a God of peace, but the Bible says that if we are not in Christ, then we are his enemy. He had many enemies when he was on earth. Uh, His enemies ended up pinning to him a tree and killing him. But he rose again. Uh, You can have him as your enemy, but know that he cannot be killed. He has risen to eternal life. That is not the type of enemy that you want. The amazing thing of the good news of Jesus it's it. As he died and rose again, he was doing so for his enemies. It was whilst I was still an enemy that Christ died for me. Can you say that tonight? That Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. My sins. So that God is no longer my enemy, but the God of peace is my friend, my God, my Savior. Uh, We're going to stand, and I'm not going to ask you any more questions, but we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. We want to be apostolic, so I thought it would be a good thing to say the Apostles' Creed together, to commend our faith to one another, to affirm what we believe. So hopefully it's on the screen. Hopefully it's big enough for you to read. Let's stand. And once we've read this, we'll go straight into the final hymn, if that's all right with the band. Uh, But let's encourage one another with these words. So together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life eternal. Amen. Let's sing together.